Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you guys. My name is Robert. I'm Ministry Associate with Ministry of State, and here with me, as always, my very good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale, also a Ministry Associate. Will, uh, you have now come under care officially. You are already kind of under care, but kind of also needing to still do the, the formal stuff, and so you came under care today at Presbyterian meeting. Yeah, thank you for celebrating me in this very special, meaningful way. I do appreciate you acknowledging it. But before I forget, I want to bring up something that I think uh, I would like to get your take on and would like to get other people's opinion on also who are listening. Uh, David Ortiz voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds appeared on the ballot for the 10th and final time. Both of them were denied admittance into the the baseball hall of fame they're not going to cooperstown uh is this is this a travesty is this justice uh should they be treated like pete rose should the people have been more strategic and not put them on the ballot so frequently like like so should should the 10th try have already happened should they not have waited a little bit like pete rose you know to bring him back in like right i i there's a story here. There's a real story here. And as Americans, we love baseball. It, it, even if you hate baseball, you love baseball. It's true. That's my, that's yeah, my it, postmodern. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? Like we're, we're like somehow still too close to the, the steroid scandal where it's, it's tainting their legacy to a certain generation of baseball writers. Whereas like the rest of us don't really remember Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens for that necessarily. Um, like we kind of knew that there was some scandal around them. Like that's how, at least how I remember Barry Bonds, but mostly what I remember Barry Bonds for is just hitting a ton of home runs. Um, and so probably like if you had just waited another few years for some of those baseball writers to age out and new ones to take their place, they'd probably be in, but now they'll, they'll never get in because of a certain, certain generation that lived through that. Yeah. Well, when he was going for to beat uh, Mark McGuire's record, I didn't like it as much. And I remember conversations like my older cousin who played baseball loved. Well, it was, it was just in high school and junior college, but loved baseball. So I cared about what he had to say. So we were talking about it. And I remember like debating with him about this as a kid. Cause like, Oh, it's just not pure. You know, this is corrupt. He's using steroids and his point, you know, you still got to hit the ball kind of thing. But I, I remember even at the time as a, as a kid being like, or high school, you know, this is, uh, this isn't legitimate. This shouldn't count. But interestingly enough, whether or not that is and Roger Clemens is another one too, because I'm actually more of a fan of Roger Clemens as a pitcher and just how dominant and impressive that he was for so long. Barry Bonds is a little bit of a different story in that like Roger Clemens was always amazing. Barry Bonds was always good and then became incredible mm-hmm. when he started using steroids. And that's something to me that marks him out as different and like that makes it. So maybe, maybe Roger Clemens is using steroids the whole, whole time, but I just don't remember a time when he wasn't this killer ace on the mound, but David Ortiz also tested positive for PEDs in 2003. That's the only time that he has tested positive, but he did test positive. And so the question is big poppy is just loved like that guy, like <laughs> everybody loves, everybody loves him. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds are two people that like you can hate pretty like I feel pretty justified with, 
like nobody doesn't like David Ortiz, especially after trying almost getting assassinated. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Big Poppy does have a special place in people's hearts. Um, so yeah, maybe that's what it is. I mean, yeah, I've never thought about it that way, but that's probably it. It's probably just a matter of like popularity. Because I, I do there, you're right though. There there is a certain group of baseball purists though that will forever hate Barry Bonds, especially Roger Clemens, too, in a way that that they'll never have for other players. So weird. Yeah. It's the same thing with the Pete Rose. Like, hey, three thousand hits, over three thousand hits. Come on, let's let the guy in. That the betting against baseball is when he was a manager. Are y'all gonna really do this? And I don't think there's any evidence actually that it affected the outcome of the games. I feel like Pete Rose is just such a darn competitor yeah uh so anyways it's interesting to think about you know as as baseball appreciators here um and and for what it's worth uh, i don't this obviously it's over you can't go back here but uh hank aaron went on and gave like uh congratulations to barry bond's speech when bonds surpassed his home run total so game respects game man that's kind of how know. i look at that uh, but there's other things going on in the world besides baseball and Hall of Fame voting. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we were at Presbytery meeting all day yesterday at, at Potomac Presbytery. Um, and Will, you came under care sort of like officially, um, at least the, the, the rights and the procedures and the policies were, were honored. And so you, you came under care of the Presbytery. Um, how was that for you? What did you, how, how did that feel? You had to give your testimony in front of like what, 120 people. So I, I didn't know what you felt about that. Yeah. I mean, for everybody who was just dying to know the ins and outs of the ordination process back <laughs> in 2020, I actually came under care and, and this is all terminology for PCA of to, it's, it's part of the process of getting ordained. So you come under care of a presbytery, you complete an internship, you take exam, all these. So under care is just one part of the process. It means basically you're under the, the oversight and um, leadership and authority of this body. Um, uh, and I think it's a good thing. Um, but I came under care in, in the North Texas Presbytery and then finally transferred it up here. So I basically come under care twice uh, I asked the clerk if that counted um, uh, for me to just be ordained. Like, hey, can, does double care actually work in terms of just becoming? <laughs> and he, uh, I don't think he even answered the question. Uh, when I, <laughs> I didn't even get a joke. Um, and so that was that was great. You know, it was fun to. Uh, um, it, it was it was encouraging to be up there. Cyril Chavis, who is the RUF pastor at Howard University, gave me. Uh, my charge when I was up there. Yeah. He told uh, you to be of... perfect. Like your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. I think I've already failed him. <laughs> and it's not even been 24 hours. Yet. <laughs> uh, I, I think many, many ways have I not lived up to that already. Uh, but he, he's, I have a lot of respect for him and really appreciate him. And so uh, glad he got to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, so you mentioned, I gave my testimony. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about the presbytery, what happened, maybe, people listening aren't as interested, but there were some overtures that were brought up to the Potomac overtures 23 and 37, which have been following anything in the PCA from general assembly on. These are overtures that have to do with uh, the language of being same sex attracted or a gay Christian. Um, And both of those were uh, voted down by a margin basically of like two to one in the Potomac Presbytery. Uh, Not all the votes are in from other presbyteries, but that has been voted down. It was interesting to be in the room listening to people talk and maybe we want to talk about this later, but um, yeah, that was, 
that was interesting. And then, uh, yeah, I came under Karen. One of the things they asked was for me to give my testimony. And, um, you know, I, I thought about it. One thing that is not unique to my testimony, I think is common to so many Christians in America is this high level of uncertainty around the efficacy of my profession as a young kid. So, you know, I first prayed the sinner's prayer when I was like four years old, I think. And um, I questioned my salvation like a billion times uh, to stick with a kid attitude on this. It felt like a billion times that I <laughs> would pray the sinner's prayer or journal or do whatever. And it wasn't until like the seventh grade that um, I remember the Holy Spirit just just assuring me of my salvation um, with a peace that only he can bring. And, uh, but, you know, talking to other people, I know a lot of other people have a similar story. They're like, yeah, I just, I wasn't sure. And I questioned and questioned and questioned. Um, and a lot of that, I think there's reasons for why that happens. But um, as we were talking, Robert, you said you had something of a different experience though. Yeah. I mean, so you were the only person that was, was kind of going through similar stuff. The, the press, what part of the business of presbyteries typically are receiving uh, new members, whether that's, you know, pastors are, are coming in to take new pastorate jobs or guys coming under care or guys going through our nation. And almost all of these require testimonies. And so um, it, Will wasn't the only one who gave his testimony. There were like six testimonies given. Um, and what was interesting is that um, as I was listening, there is always this, there's a very similar sort of thing that tends to happen where, especially for, for people who were raised in Christian homes, there's a sort of, you know, I've always known Jesus as my, as my savior. And then at some time when I was, you know, you know, in my early, you know, teens, or maybe even a little bit younger than that, you know, I had sort of a moment where the, the kind of the way it gets described is like a flip gets switched. And then that's kind of when they come into uh, uh, sort of knowledgeable assent uh, to what they've probably have already sort of understood and, and held for uh, their entire lives. And I was sitting there listening and just thinking that um, I, I don't even know if my testimony has that second part because, um, or at least if it, if it does, I don't really, I can't really think of the singular time in my life where that happened. Um, because I think maybe unlike a lot of the testimonies I, I heard at Presbytery and, you know, this is a more common thing now is um, people coming from outside of Presbyterian traditions coming into Presbyterianism and giving their testimony. And I, I was born and raised in the PCA, so I, I don't know any other tradition. And um, uh, so my, my testimony is, you know, that I, that there wasn't a day I didn't know Jesus as my savior. Um, but also, you know, if you were to ask me, well, what was, when was the time where you knew, you know, what you believed or when you professed publicly? And I would probably say, well, communion, like when I went through communicates class, um, cause that was the, that's the time that I can point to. Um, and I just, I can sense there's some, some uneasiness with that, right? There, there, there is this sort of, uh, unstated assumption that you can, you can point to that singular time. And I guess we were kind of discussing that at Presbytery. What is it that, that causes that? And you had some, you had some ideas about what, where, where that comes from. Yeah. I, I mean, um, if there's one answer, I don't, I don't think there is. I, uh, 
And I don't necessarily think it's wrong either to, to look to that one moment. I think there's enough moments of life change that people have. I guess I'm just thinking it's not the only way. And I think a lot of times there's this um, pressure to say like, to pinpoint a moment of salvation and to be able to just drill that down. I think that's troubling in, 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 in a lot of ways for the walk of sanctification um, because it somewhat ignores the fact that a lot of being saved from this world, being saved from sin is about obedience. And so about can, there's, yes, there's an imputed righteousness to us, but when scripture talks about being saved, sometimes it's talking about being saved from this world by being obedient to Jesus, by loving Jesus, by being close to him in our walk as we move throughout the world. So I think part of it, you know, if you, if you look into the old, the new Testament acts is full of conversion stories. And we would certainly say that those are moment uh, of, of, coming to faith right there. And, um, but in that is also stories of children being baptized into raising families. And we can think of, for example, um, I think it's Philip's daughters that he has that, um, you know, we don't necessarily have any conversion stories of them, but we see them ministering and witnessing an acts as well. So there's both. And then another, maybe more recent phenomenon uh, or places occurred was really during the the rise of evangelicalism in the 18th century, early 18th century with um, not, it's not just them. I think there's a lot that was coming out of um, England, but uh, John and Charles Wesley, two famous church history examples of men who wrestled profoundly with whether or not they were saved. And I think for a lot of us today, when we look back at their lives um, and we would look at their faithfulness, their obedience, uh, we would say, hey, what was going on? Because it, it looks like externally, at least they really believed like uh, what they were professing, what they were writing, what they, but there was this uh, unease and un, un, unsureness of their status before God. And um, they were looking for like this kind of solidifying um, moment. And just to skip a lot of history, you know, so much of the Christian tradition in America, we've pluralized in a lot of ways to have so many different Christian traditions since this time. But the first great awakening prior to the American Revolutionary War has done a ton to create an, a national psyche about what faith looks like personally through these public records that we have. So when you have um, ministers like George Whitfield traveling up and down, great man, an amazing preacher, an amazingly faithful man of God with his flaws. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is another example. And of course, you're the second great awakening and things going, but that was this, this, you know, um, calling people to a moment of repentance right then. And it wasn't as if that was without um, need. It wasn't as if there weren't people who were living in sin, who didn't know Jesus that needed to come to repentance. But I think in some ways what happens is, we have placed that as the only model of salvation. Whereas again, the, and this is what you had said a uh, little rambling at this point is that the idea of covenant baptism, the idea of the covenant of the covenant community is that they would grow up into knowledge of the Lord day by day, year by year. Hopefully Lord willing, there is a time where they can be like, Oh yeah, I totally believe this. Like this is a moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the pinpoint. You kind of want to look back and like you're, you're walking along through this road and all of a sudden you look up and you're in the middle of a city yeah. and you're like, when did you come into the city? And you're like, I don't know. 
but it's awesome. I'm really yeah. glad I'm here. This is pretty cool. And so I think there's maybe that's a little bit of a helpful metaphor for thinking about this idea. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't remember a time where I did I didn't know Jesus as uh, Lord and Savior. I I don't really even remember a time where I I I didn't know that I needed Him. That I uh, uh, I, like I, I couldn't have articulated what sin was, but I knew, I knew the answers, if that makes sense. Um, was there a time where those, those answers had more meaning to them because there was more sort of a lived experience in that when you get older? Yeah. But like I had similar sort of growing up moments when I was, you know, 18, as opposed to when I was nine, like when I went through first communion. Um, I've had similar moments as, you know, becoming a father, you know, at 25 uh, than I did when I was 18. So did I sort of finally come into faith, you know, when I sort of got a fuller idea of, you know, penal substitutionary atonement that I could articulate after a seminary degree that I I just, you start to open up a lot of, I think, problems with some of that, that thinking. Um, And I was thinking about this in, you know, just this week, we, we baptized my youngest um, this week. And, you know, we did pray that there wouldn't be a day uh, where he didn't know uh, Jesus as his savior and his friend and, and someone that he was close to. And um, I think that's, that's the prayer of every parent uh, and sort of betrays the, 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 the logic of sort of having these dramatic, uh, needing these dramatic conversion stories uh, that, you know, even the, the people who come out of those traditions, they still pray that their children uh, would know Jesus, you know, every day of their lives. Um, I think also just, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, it's birthed out of that revival phenomena, but there is, there is something in, in, in America, maybe it's not unique to America, but I feel like it's, it, it, it's pronounced here, um, you know, that, that need to have this dramatic sort of rags to riches story. Um, and you can kind of get that in a sort of a spiritual sense of, you know, who, who's got this sort of dramatic, you know, I, you know, prodigal son, uh, story and, and that has all these different elements into it. And I think, you know, looking for that, um, we're sort of, dri- we're, we're driven to those testimonies because of one that in, in so many of them that are, that are true, you know, that we, we do see the power of the Lord to transform hearts and the power of the Holy Spirit, um, so pronounced. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, but also I think we're gravitated to them for other reasons as well. When I think about a difference between the American context and the continental context over in Europe, one thing that I think is different about the European continent is that I think there were there were these like revivalist spirited um, uh, movements, but a lot of them had to do with like piety, were, were strongly pious movements that were underway, mm-hmm. um, uh, very devout, whereas the American is more of this pinpoint moment of salvation doesn't necessarily have to follow with a ton of the pious um, ascetic separated from society living. I think that is one of the differences, but again, I will say, you know, um, I guess it's twofold. One is our hope would be for, for families of the covenant that um, the need for revival isn't there. It will be there because we are sinners and we wander um, away. There will be this need to be called back um, to be called to life. Uh, but the, the hope is that um, people are 
or that we are nourishing and nurturing uh, those in our covenant community. I think, and but again, to bring it back to con, you know, the, the this revival spirit in America, um, I think, ought to be viewed by us, especially in our current increasingly secularizing context, as something maybe to repeal back towards. Um, there's certainly plenty of it that was became sensational. I don't know if that all of it was originally, but it became more sensationalized. But there was there were a lot of families. It's interesting to think about it, but like one of the biggest concerns people had at the time was was uh, the allure of money and capital, the being more interested in financial gain than pursuing the kingdom of heaven. And that was a lot of what set the tone for people to like George Woodfield to come along. And I think that's one we see in America today as well. Uh, there's a number of others, but I, I think, um, I mean, that's a whole conversation, I think. In itself, well, yeah, like, but- you know, it, it, it's, especially in the continental context, if, right, if you're, you're coming into sort of a, an historic Christendom, uh, where that's kind of the, the, what's in the water. And then, you know, you come to America and it's this, it's the new world, right? There is no pre-existent Christendom there. It's, it's new. And so there is sort of this frontier mindset of, of revival and, and, and almost a quasi crusading, you know, mentality. Um, and then America is dominantly Christian for so long. And, you know, now I, I was kind of fascinated by how many of the stories yesterday, right. Were stories of parents who sort of converted in the late 60s, 70s. And you think about the context of America then where, you know, there probably were a lot of people that were sort of having pronounced uh, uh, conversion stories because of this, the culture that they swam in, uh, which was far more secular and, um, uh, and, and things like that. And so as a, only that's progressed now, we probably will hear more, you know, conversion stories in, from folks in our generation of things like that, you know, and they don't have to be sensational. I mean, a lot of the stories were, you know, my parents were invited to a Bible study on, on our street. Um, yeah, but it'll be things like that. It'll be less sort of growing up in the church, but, and more, you know, those kind of moments that are birthed out of sort of normie evangelism. Yeah. And praise God for that. You know, that, that was like peak God is dead movement. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Blazoned on the front of time magazine and, uh, to have, um, Orthodox faithful people who are hosting Bible studies and, um, it was a, it was a lifeline to, yeah. to people. So yeah, it is, it is, I mean, beyond the topic of our testimonies to think about where our, what our parents grew up in and how our parents came to faith. Both my parents grew up in very different denominational backgrounds. My mother grew up Methodist and then became Baptist and now non-denominational. My, my dad, a uh, Christian church growing up largely went Baptist and now non-denominational. So, uh, and dabbles reformed though. I think he's, he's, <laughs> he likes to think. So he's intrigued by the uh, by <laughs> other reformed thinkers. So proud of you, dad. Uh, <laughs> Love that. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. The other thing that I just, I couldn't help but think about as I was listening to a couple of testimonies is, you know, how often I think of, you know, okay, if I invite this non-believer to a Bible study or to church, the impact I'm so so trained to sort of truncate it to that one person and you don't realize you know the the beauty of god working through families where you know a guy invites another guy on his street to to come to a bible study and then the son 
right of the guy invited is is now standing in front of a presbytery becoming a pastor where he'll then preach you know the gospel to hundreds of people if not thousands throughout his life and just sort of the the way that god uses these really small interactions for huge purposes um you know is kind of it's just really encouraging it's one of those things where you know, it excites you to go out and, and share the gospel with every single person you meet because of the, you know, one turns into two, which then turns into four, which then turns into hundreds and thousands is kind of the way that story goes. You know, and I want to say, even if you're, you're listening to this and you're not uh, covenantal baptism, so you believe in credo baptism, not pedo baptism, you're welcome here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's fine. I, I think the truth is, regardless of what you believe, though, we understand that one of the main means that God has continued to work his story of love towards his people is through the family mm-hmm. is, is one generation to the next. That's the reason we have genealogies in scripture. Uh, that's the reason um, that, that uh, teach the, the Shema in Deuteronomy, teach these to the, to your children, this profound truth. I mean, God has a deep care for parents. I'm not a parent. So, but I have so much, so much grateful for parents who are faithfully teaching their kids to love Jesus because like, how cool is that, that um, God has that so near and dear to his heart. And our, our foundational historical text, Dominion by Tom Holland, <laughs> is this line that I um, love so much, it gives me chills. Uh, and I think we can thank uh, our mothers when reading this. But he says, I've written much in this book about churches and monasteries and universities, but these were never the mat where the mass of the Christian people were most likely, most influentially shaped. It was always in the home that children were likeliest to absorb the revolutionary teaching that over the course of 2000 years have come to be so taken for granted as almost to seem human nature. The Christian revolution was wrought above all at the knees of women. St. Monica for Augustine, you know? Yeah. And going back even farther than that, like Timothy um, Mm. in scripture, you know, is, is blessed by his grandma and his mom. I mean, that's, that's who teaches him the faith. And, and Paul says, no, that's, that's the gospel right there. You got it pretty good from them. Well, doggone it. We had our mother's day episode too early. I know uh, we did. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I thought, you know, that was such an interesting part of presbytery and, and something that happens every time. So, you know, you just the, hearing the testimonies of how the Lord is working in his people and, and calling his people to himself uh, 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 from dramatic conversion stories to, you know, the, the simple, um, child raised in the, in the household, I think, uh, it was just an interesting thing to think about. Um, like you said, other things going on at Presbytery, uh, uh obviously a, 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 very, uh, important vote on overtures. And, um, I know there's other people, other podcasts doing a bunch of work as it comes to tracking those things. So maybe not the, uh, maybe not our place to give any analysis other than that. It was just interesting to sit in as, as two, uh, men looking for hoping, you know, Lord willing, seeking ordination in the denomination to sort of see how these debates happen. And I will say this, I was very impressed with just the, the, um, the tone of the debate. I thought it went very, I thought it was very respectful. And you, you saw people with very strong, uh, I, you know, passions on both sides, uh, but willing to embrace uh, each other in fellowship afterwards. And I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah. I, I was encouraged by that as well. I mean, there's a reason that, uh, when debating on the floor, uh, you are not to use the previous speaker's name. That's not to erase them or to act like they don't exist, but it's actually a form of respect 
to them that I think shows out. It's interesting. Like it really works. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a humbling thing for ourselves to remember too. The person speaking will not be referred to as Will or Robert, but will be the previous speaker or my brother. Uh, And there's a level of humility that'd be like, yeah, I don't just speak for my own little soapbox here, but I speak for something I think is important. Um, And so there's a, there's a dual sense of respect that I think is not always there, but can be. For sure. Obviously, other things going on too uh, in the world, uh, things that um, are going to, you know, test the uh, the commitment to prayer uh, by God's people. Of course, I, I know the big news that came out today that I saw was that Supreme Court Justice uh, Breyer announced his retirement, and so we will have another uh, uh, year of figuring out how that's going to play out and how that Supreme Court seat will get filled. Um, those always tend to be sort of existential moments in American politics, it seems these days. Um, and then of course we have, uh, the growing developments, uh, uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And so, um, uh, I, I, today I was, I was in Proverbs eight, 12 through 21, and it's talking about, you know, justice, uh, by rulers sitting there, just thinking about all the things that are going on in geo in the geopolitical world. And, um, just praying for peace, uh, I think is something that we can, we can all agree is, is something noble and a noble pursuit to do at this time. Yeah. I echo you. I mean, um, one of my roommates is in the air force and my brother is in the army. And so, uh, situation with Ukraine is real and, uh, we are, we are people of peace and, um, we doesn't mean that we don't agree with just war, but, uh, it does mean that we prefer peace for sure. Definitely. Well, with that, well, it was, it was fun to hear you give your testimony yesterday at Presbytery. Um, I hope others will, will get the opportunity to hear that as well. Uh, as always, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Artie Hassler. Will is at Stockdale. Will make sure to check out ministryestate.org where you can read uh, all of our weekly devotionals that we put out. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week. 